0: Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine. In each issue, we feature in depth interviews, narrated essays, and stories, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Paul Kingsnorth is a writer living in rural Ireland. His novels include The Wake, which was long listed for the Man Booker Prize and Beast, which was shortlisted for the Encore Award for the Best Second Novel. In 2017, he published his first collection of essays, Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist, and he's just released his second collection of poetry, Songs from the Blue River. In August of last year, I sat down with Paul to discuss some of the leading themes explored in his work. The conversation centered on the myth of progress, the failure of technology to deliver the good life, and how it has led us into the environmental crisis. We also spoke about how old myths can help us live with the uncertainty embedded in our time and how we can listen for new stories. I wanted to start with a more general question to help frame our discussion today. And that's really the question of what role do stories have in helping us to understand the environmental crisis we are now living through?
1: I mean, in one sense, Everything we do is a story. Everything we think is a story. Everything we tell ourselves about the world is a story. Um, every culture has its own stories, which is why cultures end up being so different to each other. We tell ourselves a story about, for example, our relationship with the rest of nature. So if you were to talk about modern Western society, you could say that the story that it tells itself about its relationship with the, the rest of life on Earth is that there is something out there called nature, which is rather different to humans um that we're either above it or we're separate from it and that we have a relationship with it really based on i think extraction one of any number of indigenous cultures around the world will tell a different relationship and a lot of those cultures don't have a word for nature because they don't see it as anything separate to themselves which is true of most pre-modern cultures it's my feeling it's my belief that we're living in an age of global crisis that's more than a feeling much of that is measurable we know about climate change we know about extinction we know about deforestation and all of the other the horrors of um, what industrial society is doing to the earth and it's my suspicion that much of that is to do with having told ourselves the wrong stories about the relationship that humanity has with the rest of the earth if you are a society which tells itself a story that human beings are separate from the rest of nature that human beings are really the the center point and the centerpiece of of the planet that life is primarily um, measurable through economics and through science, then you end up with a relationship with the rest of the earth, the rest of life, which sees it largely as a as a, as a material good to be exploited in some way. Um, and that's a story, and it's a damaging story. And I think that the story of our separation from nature and our superiority to it is probably at the heart of the ecological crisis that we're unleashing on the world. So the question that interests me at that point is, what stories could we tell instead? that would give us a
0: healthier relationship with the natural world. You talk about a crisis of stories. Maybe if you could talk a little bit more about that and what that means. When we look at the ecological crisis, we tend to look at
1: it through the lens of economics or politics or science or culture. So we might say that the problem is we're using the wrong technologies. We're burning fossil fuels and putting gases up into the atmosphere and we need a different kind of energy source. We might say that we have political systems that don't work. They're not allowing nations to cooperate with each other in a way that can protect the planet properly. We might say that it's an economic problem. We might say, for example, uh, because we don't put a price on nature, that means that um, we don't value it properly and we could use economics to, to value the natural world properly. And while all of that may be true, and all of those points are maybe worth making, I think that the deeper problem is a problem of relationship, which is maybe another way of talking about stories. We have in our culture a particular relationship with the rest of life, which I think is based on the notion that we're separate from it and that they can either protect it or exploit it. But really, it's something out there that's different to us. It's not something that we're equal to. That to me is a kind of human chauvinism and it's an incorrect story. And you can see it's an incorrect story by looking at the damage we're doing externally, but you can also, I think, look inside yourself and ask yourself if that story seems satisfying to you on a spiritual level, which I don't think it does to a lot of people. So what story would you tell instead? How would you tell a story that we were not separate from the rest of life, but were connected to it? How could you tell that story in a way that had meaning to people? Can you do that in a society like this in which uh, in, in everyday life we're so disconnected? I don't know, but that's the big question for me.
0: So if you had to name the most powerful story or myth that tells this story of this connection to nature, what would it be and what name would you give it? Probably the central story of our culture, uh, which I think has
1: replaced a lot of the religious stories that used to be at the heart of our culture, is the story of progress. What we say is it is possible through human ingenuity to create a utopia. And we have a story which tells us that human beings started as ignorant savages, and are moving through a, a series of progressive steps in which, at every point, they get cleverer, they get richer, they get smarter, they develop technologies which allow them to live longer, um, they learn more, and eventually that ends up with us probably leaving the planet and colonising the stars, or living forever, or downloading our brains into silicon chips. And it's a kind of um, it's a kind of technological rapture, and it sees time in a linear fashion rather than a cyclical fashion. It sees an endless series of steps, every one of which improves things in a material sense from the one before. I don't think it's historically true. Actually, what happens is that things tend to rise and fall in cycles, but it has an enormously powerful grip on us. And it informs everything from our view of the past, which we increasingly believe was a a, a savage place in which um, our lack of technology and science drove us to a sort of uh, misery and poverty, to our view of the future in which we assume that uh, more technology and more scientific focus and more centralization will, will take us to, to a kind of paradise. And so we have this story that we believe in which everything continues to get better every generation. And our job is to um, keep that process going. And one, I think once you believe that, then um, you are stuck in a very a very linear narrative. You're unable to see Um, You're unable to learn much from the past and you're probably unable to learn much from
0: the mistakes of the present as well. So would you say then that story, if you believe it uh, or you're striving to be part of it, then gives you permission to abandon stories and myths that you may have believed to be true or a part of your cultural conditioning um, or that you were a character in? I think that.
1: One of the dangerous things about the story of progress is that we don't think it's a story. Uh, we think just it's the truth. We think it's real, um, rather than it's simply an interpretation of the world which we've chosen to believe. Um, and I think that all of us believe it in some way because it's how we were brought up. Um, this is this is just what we think is happening. Every generation, things are getting better and better through the use of technology and science. So if you can improve people's lives generation upon generation, then they can start to believe that that's an endless process that will go on forever. But we're only managing to do that by stripping away the life support systems of the planet. And so at some stage, you start to reach a reckoning. And if we start getting two or three or even four degrees of climate change over the next century or so, then um, the material benefits, the short-term benefits that people are getting at the moment from that process starts to look pretty hollow. And that's what's starting to happen now. We can see the ecological limits being hit, and we can see all sorts of, of, of pain and difficulty emerging from that, but it hasn't hit enough people's lives in the wealthy world yet for that to be um, a process which really makes people think differently about about this 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 notion of progress and, um, and modernity, I suppose. So would you say the myth is unraveling, this story is unraveling? The thing about progress as a notion is that if things don't continue to get better for most people, generation upon generation, then... It's not possible to believe it anymore, um, and that's starting to happen. And you know, if, if things get really considerably worse ecologically, then it will it will happen considerably faster. And then, then it will be something impossible to believe. And at that point, you've got a uh, I don't know. You've got a lot of chaos coming down the line because when your stories fracture, the
0: things that you believe to be true stop being true. So the the idea of you know being made aware through personal you know, challenges in one's life. Like you can't have the same lifestyle that your parents had. You can't buy a house. There is this wall you're, you're hitting environmentally reveals that there's a challenge, you know, with the story we have, but then how would you go from, you know, removing yourself from that story to um, being part of a new story, which as you were saying earlier is more about living in relationship with the earth and is connected to an older story. That seems like a big leap in some ways to make.
1: I think it is a big leak and I don't think it's a leak that you can consciously make. I don't think we're in a situation where we can sit down and say, right, we need a new story and a new way of seeing. People's worldviews and their stories and their myths develop out of their circumstances. That's true of any culture ever, from the smallest tribe to the biggest civilization. You develop a story that fits with your practical experience. So while we're all still wealthy and we're sitting around having middle-class lifestyles, then uh, the story of progress makes perfect sense. It will only change when those things fall away. When we hit a wall and it's impossible to believe that this is working anymore, when things are getting considerably worse for most people, then we'll start thinking about the world differently and new things will emerge from that. But that's a long process. It's not something I don't think that can be consciously constructed. I think we make a mistake if we think we can sit down and, and draw up a some sort of monomyth or new way of seeing that everyone's supposed to buy into. it. Will, you know, we will believe what appears to be true. And for some people in the world today, it's, um, it appears to be true that, that things continually uh, progress in a, in a sort of upward direction.
0: There are a lot of other people for whom it doesn't look true. So what made you shift from thinking that you could create new stories, tell new stories, um, share new stories that would shift people's perspective to this idea you have now of it's going to come out in its own time in response to people's circumstances.
1: Well, I think I can still do that in a way. And it's what I do when I write. Um, Although I don't necessarily do it consciously, um, but the act of writing an essay or the the act of writing a novel or the act of telling any kind of story in that, those kinds of narrative forms, um, they are a very small way of telling different stories and challenging things. Um, and I think actually that's that's what the work is. The work is people doing things at a really quite a small level, at a personal level, doing their small work. I think that what I used to believe, um, arrogantly, probably, that we could work together to create some grand new story for humanity is just foolish. Um, but that doesn't mean that lots and lots of small stories don't come together to form something bigger, which I think is probably how it always works. If if enough people are questioning, and increasing numbers of people are, if enough people are questioning the way the world works and the values we have and the stories we tell ourselves, then what they start to do instead starts to add up to something. And this is really what we've been trying to do with the Dark Mountain Project for nearly 10
0: years. So you spoke earlier about um, old stories that have uh, been around in different forms representing different cultures for as long as we've been around essentially. And your work has explored this and you've spoken about this. Um, So maybe you could talk a bit about the role of these older stories in helping us understand the crisis of our current situation and what role do they play as we, in all the different ways we are telling them, you know, tell stories that honor or take into account that, knowledge that was present before. It seems to me that a
1: lot of the stories that we need are there already, and that what we're looking at here is not a process of creating a new story that we somehow all have to live by, but paying attention to older ones that we have forgot, um, which may mean stories from indigenous cultures, it may mean fairy tales, it may mean old myths, it may mean stories in some of the old religious books, but a lot of the stories that we need in terms of giving us an indication of how we can live well with the rest of the world are probably out there already it's just a process of rediscovering them i don't know if there's one story i would pick that would tell that story of disconnection but um one of the problems we've got maybe in our culture is that we don't quite know how to hear these stories anymore we tend to We tend to want to rationally analyze and imagine that we can intellectually grasp and understand every aspect of something that we hear in order for it to make sense. But that's not necessarily the case. A lot of the older stories and the myths work on you at a level which isn't necessarily rationally measurable, but you can still see what's going on. Um, And so you can take these old stories which come from a time when people were still living in a broadly oral culture and they were hearing stories in a communal setting and the stories gave them a relationship between people and places and landscape and they start to work on you. They change the way that you see the world. That's been my experience of them, in a way that no amount of argument will ever do, and no number of rational cases will ever do. And you start to um, start to see the kind of the, the symbolism and the meaning beneath a lot
0: of everyday stuff. So this theme of relationship, which you mentioned as mm-hmm. almost a replacement for the word story, mm-hmm. earlier, um, could you talk a little bit more about how that was present in? these older stories um, between people and landscapes and places and how that can offer an example of how to, you know, lead us into these telling of newer stories. In European fairy tales, very often the landscape is, is,
1: is alive with magic and strangeness. Um, There's an other world, which is in a constant relationship with this world, with the material world we live in. And most of that stuff in those fairy tales is treated very casually Um, It's just, you know, an old woman will walk out of a tree and deliver a message to you. Um, There will be be fairies and demons in the woods. People can talk to animals. Animals can talk to them. And it's not necessarily meant to be taken literally in the sense that you will walk into the woods and a deer will talk to you or offer you a secret. But there's this constant notion of an endless exchange in language between humans and the rest of nature, which you also find in many indigenous cultures too, this notion that you know, you're just in a conversation with the rest of nature. Um, whereas in our society, we're not in a conversation with the rest of nature. We've forgotten how to hear it. We don't talk to it. It's a resource. We either protect it or we exploit it, but we don't feel we're in a conversation with it. We don't really feel threatened by it. We don't feel we have to give much to it. If you close that door, if you close the door between the human world and the other world, the world of humans and the world of the forest, the village and the forest, if you put a great fence between the village and the forest, if you like, then you're in for some big trouble. So stories that can break that wall down or can open that door again, take us out into that strange, almost supernatural exchange between people and the rest of life are stories that we need now, I think. And they're stories I've ended up writing in my fiction as well, not even necessarily intentionally, but I find in the fiction that I write, the places, the landscape, the natural world is as much a character as the humans are. And often it has a voice and they're in an exchange with it, which isn't always necessarily a pleasant exchange or a benevolent one. But you're in a conversation with the landscape, in a conversation with the natural world and with other things. And we just don't really know how to do that anymore. I think it's something we could be relearning clumsily. I think it's what we need to to fumble towards. How do
0: we get that conversation going again? For me, that's the big question now. Talk to me more about relearning, because that doesn't seem to be a concept that is very Western when it thinks about, you know, responding to problems or creating something new or dealing with challenges. It's usually solution, execute.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, what if what if there's something we've forgotten? And what if we've forgotten how to speak to and to listen to other things that live? I think it's a question of shutting our mouths for a while and being a bit humble and going outside and listening and learning again I think one of the things we're really good at in as a society is identifying a problem and proposing a solution to the problem and then going off and putting that into place that's been our kind of special genius as as, as modern humans which is why we've got so much technology and so much power um, but we're very very bad at listening to what everything else has to say we don't really believe any of it's alive and so I think that learning from old stories listening to them listening to storytellers paying attention to indigenous ways of seeing and just going out and listening and paying attention to things does start to subtly change your worldview. It certainly happened to me. And I couldn't point to any enormous instantaneous change that has happened to me. But certainly over the last 10 years, this notion that I don't really know everything, and that I've got a lot to learn, rather than a lot to teach. And that there's a conversation I don't know how to have, and I'd like to learn how to have it has been a kind of constant thing for me and it's changed me subtly and I, there's still a lot I'd like to do and a lot I'd like to learn and a lot I'd like to know but I think that's increasingly such an important task just to learn how to listen to relearn what we've forgotten well and I don't think there's any easy sort of ABC curriculum
0: for it but you know there's there's a lot of work you can do so this notion of listening just to dive into that a little bit more I think is something that is very actually challenging for people to Understand, yeah, learn to listen. But as you well know, when most people are mm. having a conversation they're thinking about what they're gonna say next, rather than listening to what the person or the landscape or the non human presence is offering. So if you had to kind of unpack a little bit, you know, maybe even from your own experience about what does it mean to listen and how we can listen.
1: I think that um stories come from people connected to landscapes. Um again, the old fairy tales, the old myths, they work because They're told by people who really have paid attention to the forest and the creatures in it Um, and so it's a story that works. I just think it's very hard for us to listen. Um, Last year, I spent four days sitting in a wood with no food on a wilderness vigil, um, a rite of passage, if you like, a vision quest um, in which you literally choose a spot to sit in. You, you, you make your little circle of 50 feet around you, perhaps, and you don't move out of that for four days and you don't eat anything, you just drink. And you just sit there and pay attention and see what happens. Not necessarily with the expectation that anything spectacular will happen. Um, and it's very hard work, actually. It's very hard work to get yourself out of your head, to get yourself out of your own expectations, to not to get impatient, to want to do something, to want to walk off and, um, do something productive because I think that's the society that that we've found ourselves in that it's just very, very hard to sit still and pay attention. But after about three days of being forced to do that, you do realize that it is possible and you end up just sitting there and listening. And it's just a fascinating process. You notice the sounds of the forest in a way that you wouldn't have noticed them before. You notice the touch of the wind on your skin. You can hear music that you didn't think you could hear before. Um, your relationship with the land has deepened in a way that you can't quite put your finger on. You can start to see, even if you just do that for a few days, how somebody who had grown up in a culture that just lived in a forest, for example, and relied on it for their for their lives, would have a completely different relationship with that landscape. Totally different. And like I say, I just think that process of relearning how to listen is so important. We're either going to do that successfully or we're all going to be that's going to be the end of this particular cultural experiment that humans are on. Because it's just—it's not sustainable in any sense to be a culture that just takes and just passes by and just walks through and doesn't listen. And you can't create stories unless you're listening to something. You can't create stories that have any meaning unless the rest of nature can speak to you in some way, unless you can hear what it's got to say, unless there's an exchange. You're just humans talking to other humans about humans in a human world. And that's a broken world, actually. If it's just got people in it, if it's got nothing else, if there's no exchange with anything outside our bubble, then we haven't got any story to tell that's that's real, I don't think.
0: I, I, you know, I'm very much personally in agreement with you about what you've just said. And at the same time, the majority of people live in cities Mm -hmm. and the majority of the people who are currently living in in rural parts of the world are most likely going to be moving to cities in the next 20 years. So how does that then play into this story of learning how to listen when the reality is most people are not going to be in places where they're able to listen because the physical environment does not even allow listening?
1: Well, absolutely. And that's part of the crisis, isn't it? Which is only going to get worse before it gets better. Um, so, all I can say to that is that those people who are in a position to pay attention, to listen, to try and write or create new ways of seeing have a responsibility to do that and probably also have a responsibility to protect what remains of older societies, who are uh, indigenous cultures, for example, who are still endlessly suffering. Um, colonization and land theft and extinction and um, annihilation. I I do increasingly think that a lot of the really important work around the world is going on in indigenous cultures, and they continue to be pushed out and destroyed by settled cultures and city-based cultures. And if we can't protect them and the stories that they carry and the knowledge that they have, then we're in some trouble. Um, I always come back to the same answer, which is those of us who can do what we can should just do it. Um, without any expectation that it's going to lead to a quick world-changing solution because I don't think it is, but it's an, it's it's more a sense of um, those of us who can kind of building refuges, protecting what we can protect, telling the stories we can tell, trying to look for truth if that's what we're doing, um, and hoping that that can sort of be passed down generations as things go on. It's a long process. I think Gary Snyder said something like, we're in a 2,000-year a or maybe even a 5,000-year Um, process of trying to live well on the earth i don't think this is something that we're going to turn around in a generation
0: or two i think it's just slow work that we have to try and do so we just do what we can do i think it seems like at least from my reading of the trajectory of your work over the last uh, decade or so that you've been exploring more concepts that could be described as spiritual or what is sacred um, in relationship to place and people those ideas things being spiritual things being sacred are often dismissed by mainstream culture yet they seem to have an important role to play in the telling of these new stories or even just to listen to what was present in the older stories from that perspective
1: i mean increasingly it seems to me that the the kind of spiritual void if you want to use that word at the heart of our culture is the the essential thing if you don't hold anything sacred at all If you don't believe as a society or as as an individual that there's anything greater than you, whatever that thing is, then everything is about you. If you have a society that doesn't believe anything is greater than itself, then it becomes what we've become, I think, which is narcissistic and materialistic and really almost a society of what Buddhists would call hungry ghosts wandering around eating the world. I've I've written a little bit about this. I was always very struck with the meaning of the word holy, which is an old English word originally, which uh, the word is hali, which also meant whole as in just not separated, not divided. Um, If you see the earth as whole, you have a very different relationship to if you see the earth as, as, as a collection of separate parts to which you can, you can have a different relationship, which you can use them to manipulate. And I think that we as a society don't hold anything sacred anymore, really. And as you say, even to use words like sacred or spiritual will, will invite derision in, in, in a lot of quarters, because we've convinced ourselves that everything is measurable and everything that matters can be measured. I think that's the, the heart of the crisis that we have, that the way that we react, for example, to a, a beautiful forest or a sunset on a mountain or a whale breaching in the ocean, the way that we personally react to that is always um, hugely emotional. You know, you have a, a deep emotional connection to that. It stirs something in you. It's not something that can be put into to words very often, and it's very real, but because you can't put it into words or measure it, we treat it as if it isn't real. And that old animal emotional or spiritual connection to the natural world, we just pretend isn't there anymore, or it's just a, a kind of bit of fluff that doesn't really matter, but it does. I think it's the heart of things. And if you don't acknowledge that sense of specialness, holiness, otherness, wonder, beauty... In the natural world, then you haven't—you haven't got anything. You've lost one of the most central parts of being human, and the stories you tell are always going to be empty.
0: Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calyphea Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia. Explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.